will be a prosperous one. Let's, let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you once again that we can come together to study. Please help each one of us to remember that no matter what may be going on in our lives, that you are able to help us. So please bless us and keep us now. And be with me, dear Lord. I know that some of us were tired. It's been a long day. But keep us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking here at the continuation of the series regarding the nature of the remnant church. We looked at in our last meeting, we talked about the coming of Elijah, how that God foretold through the book of uh, the, the prophet Malachi that God would send a special movement just before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, as I said, you know, if you go back and study the characteristics that uh, existed at the time of the first Elijah, the second Elijah, you will see direct parallels. And, of course, that will transfer over to the third Elijah. As I mentioned, one of the very most interesting uh, characteristics of the time of the uh, first two Elijahs, they, they rose up at a time when, when really religiously, politically, socially, everything was in chaos. I mean, morally bankrupt people. The church was a disgrace as a, as a witness. A matter of fact, as a matter of fact, in some parts of the church, particularly in the first Elijah, uh, they were so heinous in some of the things they were doing. Even the wicked wouldn't partake. They realized, man, that, I mean, they knew they were wicked, but they thought, well, we ain't, we're not that wicked. But see, but that goes to show you, by the way, it just goes to show you when you reject light, you, you say, well, I'll never, I'll never do this. Nah. Yeah, let me tell you something. Oh, yes, you will when you reject Jesus. Yes. You turn your back on him, you'll do things you couldn't believe you'll do. And, uh, and, um, and uh, it kind of reminds you of the story where the man, you know, cast the demons came out of him and told him to basically, you know, to keep yourself pure. But if you don't, he says, seven worse, more demons are going to come on in. And that's exactly what happens. I'm, I'm convinced. You, you know, look, you look at the history of the children of Israel. If you just take them as an example. Paul even tells us to study them for an example. What to avoid. Not so much what to do, but what not to do, which is a sad tragedy. But if you look at them today in, in the light of where they once were, I mean, at one, at one time, they were the chosen people of God. Now, by the way, the word chosen people, they, that gets thrown around so much. And I, if you get into a discussion with, uh, say, a Jewish person, and this comes up regarding to so the chosen, so, well, you've been chosen for what then? What have you been chosen for? If you're the chosen people. But if I understand my Old Testament scriptures, you've been chosen to, to preach the gospel. You were chosen to do that, to tell the people, see, they should have been the first Elijah in, his, in the sense, you know, in other words, you know, they should have been preparing the world. They should have been telling people about the coming of, this, of, of, the, of the birth of the Holy Christ, Jesus Christ. So they should have fulfilled uh, that, that, uh, that role and that function. Sadly, they haven't. But look at the condition of them, all as a result of rejecting, if you go back to patriarchs, the prophets, and, and, and the apostles, and Jesus Christ, and so forth and so on. Look at where they're at. And that's a thing to all of us. Don't think you, 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 you can't go down that, that uh, avenue. Yes, you can. So be careful. Be very careful. Stay close to God, and, and, uh, and uh, he will help you. But let's look here. And, we're gonna, and, and I'm not going to look at every single identify mark, although I'll make reference to them. 
We'll pause and, and look at a few of them. But when you go back, for example, when you go back uh, to the uh, breakdown of the 12th chapter, where it's dealing with the remnant church, you have uh, a, a number of identified marks given within that chapter regarding who the remnant really is. I mean, often we go to the last verse, which is a very important one, obviously. They keep the commandments of God, have the faith of Jesus, things like that. So you know that that's two very interesting identified marks. We know they're commandment keepers. That's clear. Then, of course, you've got to be able to articulate what does that mean to be a commandment keeper? You know, what's, what's that saying? And, uh, but nonetheless, let's look at a few of them here. Uh, we know according to Revelation chapter 12, 14 to 16. Now, again, this is the interesting part. Remember, this, this actually is a, we're picking back up where he left off in verse 6. Because remember, verses 1 to 6 deal with the church and, uh, and then just at the end, uh, as it's being persecuted, it flees into the wilderness. And then there's a break. And then 7 to 9 deal with the war in heaven. Right? And so then you have this warning given by God, a message from heaven saying, Woe be to you who are the inhabitants of the earth, because the devil's come down onto you having great wrath. He knows his time is short. You guys better be careful. So he knows all this. And by the way, when it makes that reference there, remember, Satan has an agenda. And whenever you have a task at hand, particularly if your boss, your employer, tells you, I need this done by Tuesday, and let's say you're lagging behind, you will work overtime to get that job done because you now know he has to have that finished by that particular period. Or there might be some serious consequences coming your way. So fear will get you moving. You understand? Fear will motivate you. And again, there's two kinds of fear. There's a healthy fear, and then there's the wrong kind of fear. You don't scare people into loving Jesus. But you scare them into the realization of their condition if they don't follow him. In other words, wow. So... There, it's very important that you use it in the right way in terms of the way God uses it. I mean, for example, when he tells you, and I mentioned about this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, particularly if you look at that chapter, he tells you, this is what I'll do for you if, if you follow me. But if you don't, here's what I'm going to do to you. And listen, <clears throat> you need to take that into consideration. God means exactly what he says. He's not kidding. Just because, by the way, just because you don't see the wrath of God exhibited it in the same way in which you see it demonstrated in the scriptures sometimes doesn't mean God isn't sending judgment, nor does it mean God's word doesn't hold true. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. God means business, and there's going to come a day sooner than I think we believe. It's going to, there's going to come a day you're going to see judgments the likes of which this world's never witnessed before. And we're going to then, let me tell you something, you're going to have to catch your breath because it's going to take some people away. They're just going to be taken back at what's, what's really going on. So we're looking here identifying marks. We know that it goes into the wilderness and then it comes up out of the wilderness. Going into the wilderness from 538 to 1798, that 1260 year period, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, time, times, and a dividing of times or three and a half weeks. All of it's the same thing. It's 1260 days a day, Ezekiel 4, 6, Numbers 14, 34, a day, Bible prophecy represents a year. And so it's 1260 years. So when would it come out of the wilderness experience? Well, we know the remnant church must appear in terms of, remember, this is the, the, the end of time. This is at the end of time. 
and 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 really this comes the the, the time of the of of, um, of God raising up the 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 final um, movement for for this earth's history. And so we know it comes sometime after 1798. Has to be after that period of captivity when the woman fled into the wilderness. She has to come out of that wilderness experience. At some point in time, those 1260 years come to an end. And it ended in 1798, which then clearly indicates that's when the woman would come out of that wilderness experience. And when you look at the history of the church from 538 to 1798, really that is the period known in, by historians as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. I don't really like the Middle Ages because the middle, middle of what? When you say Dark Ages, it implies that period had a very um, sinister period. Dark. What's dark? Or they also call it the Medieval Ages. What was so evil about it? See, that's, that's a proper description. The Medieval or the Dark Ages. I don't like the, 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 the Mid-Ages or the Middle Ages. I, I don't, I just, it doesn't mean anything really in some, but when you describe it as the Dark Ages or the Medieval now you're saying something's bad about that period. Something happened. And what made it so bad? What made it so dark? What made it so evil? Was because God's church had to flee into the wilderness. The light of the gospel truth in general was taken away from the people. Now there were those doing all that they can to preserve the integrity of the word of the Lord. We think of people such as the Waldensians. We think of people like the, the, the Albigenses. We think of the Hussites, and, and there's so many. We can go down the list. There's scores of groups of people throughout the history that did everything they could to preserve the integrity of the Word of God. But as you have heard about this period, known as the Dark Ages, also during that period, particularly around the 11th, 12th century, we have what is known as the Inquisition now put into full gear. Okay, It starts to kick in, and the tribunals were set up throughout Europe um, because the Catholic Church did not want any contenders to the throne. It wanted to reign supremely on its own without anyone contesting its authority because Rome uh, was doing all that it could to uh, prevent the truth of the gospel to be heard because the opening of the word of God, remember, the entrance to thy word gives what? Light. It, and light is illumination upon that which is dark. Right? Light doesn't give illumination to light. Light is light, and light only works when there's darkness. In other words, it begins to illuminate what is not, or what, at least at a period of time, you cannot see. So, so the, the, during that period, the Catholic Church m murdered and slaughtered innocent people by the tens of millions. Now again, depending on which historian you go with, it all depends on the number of people. But uh, the number can be from, from, from 50 million to 200 million people. We, no one really knows. Um, uh, one thing is clear. One thing is clear, both in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and, uh, and other parts of Daniel, but in Revelation as well. We know, we know that the little horn power would be a persecuting power. It would persecute the saints. Wear out the saints of the Most High. Wear out. That's old English. We don't use that anymore. I remember when I was a little kid, we used it. I mean, I didn't know what it meant. I mean, I didn't know it was a biblical phrase, but you didn't want your mother to say, I'll wear you out. Because <laughs> trust me, you'd have gotten wore out. And, uh, you know, that just was the, on the bottom side. You can't do that today because your child will sue you. 
Ain't that crazy? Unbelievable. Children are getting so bad today, it's not even funny. And I feel sorry for them because a lot of them don't know what a loving home is, it is supposed to be like. That's sad. We really, you know, we really need to pray that God, you know, let me, let me back up just a little. You know the servant Lord says, I think that's four or five times. I'm trying to remember. I think about five times. We are told by the, by the servant Lord to pray that God will give, uh, grant us more time. Not so that you can squander the time, but that you could redeem the time. So that you can take advantage of that opportunity to get your life right with God. See, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, he, and we're told from the servant Lord, pray that God grants us more time. And, um, and I do that. I, I'm, I'm sure, maybe some of you do too, I don't know, but I do specific, God, please give us more time. And then I always qualify, Lord, and help me not to squander it. And um, so, you know, it's, it's very important. But you see, this, this period was a very important. So we know the church has to come out of its wilderness experience sometime after 1798. That's when it's going to appear on the earth. Then number two, we look here at Revelation chapter 12, 16. It arises in the new world. Now, why do we say that? Because if you look at that passage, matter of fact, let's go over to Revelation 12 real quick. Let's go over there, because that's where we're going to stay for just a little bit. Look at verse 16. The woman comes out of the wilderness experience. Satan's after her. He's persecuting her, still hunting her down. And then, and then now watch what happened. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed the flood of, uh, 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 which the dragon uh, did cast out of his mouth. So the earth is a means by which God is using in a symbolic language here as a place of shelter, protection for the church fleeing. It came out of the wilderness experience sometime after 1798 and now God has a place of refuge for it. It has a place where it can hide. Where before, if you look during the wilderness experience, during that 1260 years, she flees into the wilderness. But here now the earth comes to help her. Now, if seas in Bible prophecy, Revelation chapter 17, 15, seas, waters, represent the multitudes of people in the old world, right? Because it represents two things, not just multitudes of people. When you look, for example, in Daniel chapter 7 and the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, these beasts all rose up out of the water. Now, if you look at who these beasts are, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then in Revelation chapter 13, the first beast, composite beast, is, is papal Rome. But it's a composite of the four beasts I just mentioned. So if you look at that and you see all these powers came up out of the water where there's the multitudes of people in the old world. Because if you look at the location of these powers, it's the old world. It's not the new world. So... What do you have going on? So the multitudes of people represented by the waters represents the masses of people in the old world. Well, the earth is the opposite of water. If the seas represent the multitudes of people in the old world and the earth is the opposite of the water, then the earth must represent few people in the new world. So the earth here is referring to the new world. So... Here, the church would find a haven of rest in the new world. Let me tell you something right now why God established the United States of America. It wasn't so that the pilgrims could come over here and have the Native Americans introduce them to corn. 
and have thanksgiving. That's not the reason why God brought them over here. You know, people say this is, the, this is what's one of the biggest problems today in, in, in this country particularly, as well as others, but particularly in this country. A lack of true understanding of American history. It is absolutely unbelievable how ignorant so many are regarding the true history of the United States of America. And particularly what bothers me among those who claim to be Christians, because especially some of the evidence where they ought to know these things that I'm, just, I'm teaching right here. This is, by the way, you understand that what I've been telling you their first, the first meeting and this one is fundamentally elementary Seventh-day Adventism. I'm not preaching anything profound and deep. Saying, Boy, this guy, woo, he's deep. What's deep? What did I do? I just told you the basic messages of who we are. That's it. If it had a profound effect on you, which I hope it did in one sense, it's because God was trying to enlighten your mind to help you to see you know, who we are individually and collectively. But let me tell you this right now. Why did God establish this country? Because he had a divine mission. His church needed a place to rest so that he could gather his flock together to prepare them for a divine mission to finish this world's work. Do you understand? You've got to see why. Look, this, and, I, and your people say, well, this land didn't belong to, to, to the Europeans. It belonged to the Native Americans. I beg you. And these are coming from, I've heard even Seventh-day Adventist Christians and Christians in general talk this way. And I said, hey, time out. Excuse me? I beg your pardon? You think we human beings own this land and this earth? It's ours? You can't be that arrogant and ignorant. The Holy Bible says the earth belongs to God and everything therein. It's all his. Hey, hey, we are stewards. Did you ever think, did you ever think that after the flood, by the way, what did Paul say in Colossians? The how far did the gospel go in Paul's day? Every creature on the face of the earth at the time heard the gospel. Did you ever think that when God gives a land to another group who are not indigenous to that land is because the people who were indigenous to that land forfeited their right to the land because they were unfaithful in the things that God had given to them? God said, no, you've been an unfaithful steward. I'm, and by the way, this is a biblical principle because if you understand the parable of the talents, what did he do with the one who had the one talent? He gave it to the one who had the... He took the one talent from the one man who was unfaithful with that talent and the one who had the most talent who multiplied said, here, I'm going to give you this one too. Now that one guy that said, man, what a racist bigot. He took my talent. That was my talent. Now he could have said that. And God said, but son, that wasn't your talent. That was mine. I lent it to you. Friend, let me ask you, is money a talent? Is money a talent? Yes, it is. You're dumb with money. You abuse it. Guess what? You're going to be poor one day. And maybe that's one of the reasons why some of you are poor. Because you've been unfaithful in the way you spend your money. Listen. Let me tell you this right now. I've seen people who don't have money. It's not because they, 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 they um, are necessarily lazy. It's because they're not wise with the talent that God has given to them. 
They spend it on things you just scratch your head and say, well, why did you, you have, like, I've seen this happen. And I'm sure you probably know people like this. They had a TV. It was a 40-inch TV, which is a big TV. And they said, no, that ain't good enough. I need an 80-inch TV. And they go sell, and they spend, and they get them, hock themselves in debt over an 80-inch TV when they had a perfectly good TV for 40 inches. And I'm thinking, now that is telling me you don't know how to handle money. And you wonder why you can't pay your bills. So you see people behaving in a manner that are unfaithful to the things that they have. Now, some people are born poor. Jesus said the poor shall always be with you. And so I'm sorry, but some people, it's just, you know, you're dealt a certain hand in life. All right? Now, that doesn't mean God wants you to remain that way. We're not to remain in that position. But just because you were born poor doesn't mean you have to stay poor. And by the way, poor doesn't mean also that you have to dress like a slob. There are a lot of people that I know that are poor that dress as best as they can and as neatly as they can and with cleanliness. They keep their clothes clean. Do you understand? There's a difference. And I've seen rich people. They have everything. Their clothes are lying all over. Listen, I, I, I pastored churches and I've gone around did, done missionary work. You go into people's homes. You're not being nosy, but I'm sorry, but if you invite me to the house, I got eyes to see. And I can see things and you see people and mm. How can you live that way? So what happened, dear friends, America was established because God knew that this new world, this new world would be a haven of rest. And by the way, just thinking as a footnote on this, imagine here for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, why didn't the Western or the, or the, the world of the East, the old world, why didn't it ever discover the new world? For centuries upon centuries of time, it remained basically in the dark. Nobody knew. And by the way, and you know when they were when 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 uh, Christopher Columbus, and I know he's not a popular man today, uh, not with me by the way. I I think the explorers were incredible individuals. I never said they were perfect, but I do believe they were incredible people. And I believe God actually used these people. Not a question in my mind. However. When, when they explored the world, do you know what they were really searching for? A shorter route to India. Did you know that? They were searching for a shorter route to get to India. So when, they went, when Christopher Columbus went at the time, he didn't know, at West Indies, he thought he had found a shorter route to India. That's why he called them Indians. Do you understand why Native Americans are called Indians? It's not a derogatory term. And I've had people say, well, you can't say that about Native Americans. Well, I'm sorry, but they are Indians. Uh, you see, it's, it, if in, calling someone an Indian who's Native American is racist, then calling an Indian who's from India is racist. Because they thought they had discovered a shorter route to India. They said, oh, wow, we're, we made it to India. These are the Indians. That's the history. Yet it just shows you how ignorant Americans really are. They don't know their history. They don't know what in the world's going on. And we could go down the list of one issue after another, after another, after another, and show the fallacies that exist today in the minds of so many regarding what they believe to be the truth regarding this country. And it's not. It's just a lie. It's a pack of lies. You ever heard of this 1619 nonsense? This, this 1619 project? You ever heard of that? Anybody? Nobody? You ever heard? Listen to me. This is one of the biggest. It's been out for a couple of years now. And it's basically a rewriting of American history. 
and fundamentally relegates the position where we, 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 should, we shouldn't be here in this country. We should give it all back. And I, one time I asked a, a, a person you know, who was, uh, or was listening to someone, I should say, listening to someone who is of a, a Mexican origin, and he said, and he's speaking about, North, about the United States, they should all be gone, you know, go back into in, in where they came from, speaking of the Anglo whites, really. And, uh, and I thought to myself, if that, if that man only knew who came to Mexico, I said it was the Spanish. And who are the Spanish? The Spanish are, are Europeans. So, you know, look, God has made a way through his divine purpose where nations rise and nations fall, where people are brought into a place such as here in America at the time, a, a, a haven where he had prepared it. And by the way, in the Great Controversy and other places, Spirit of Prophecy, she actually says that, that God had prepared this country for that very purpose. Did you all know that? And so for, for us to question the divine sovereignty of God and impugn the, the historical context of this country's origin regarding as if, as if we had no right to it, you are slandering the character and the divine purpose of God regarding the rise and fall of, of, this, of this country. There's only one reason why God brought us here. One reason is to finish the work of God. He needed a launching pad, as it were. Let me ask you something. Does God know the end from the beginning? Yeah, all right. He knows the end. All right, now listen. In his divine wisdom, does God ever make a mistake? All right, now listen. So when he raised this country up, he raised it for a divine purpose because he knew what Europe was going to be like. He knew what the old world had been like for thousands of years. They weren't changing. He had given them a chance. Let me ask you something. When God told the children of Israel to go to the world, did they obey him? No, they didn't. He played with them prophet after prophet time and time again. Did they obey him? No. So what did God eventually say? He said, listen, I love you too much to see you perish. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you into, into captivity. I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring the Egyptians and they're going to take you into slavery. Now, did God want them to be slaves? Did he want them to be slaves? Was it that? No, it wasn't his will. It wasn't his, but because of the bad choices they made, he left them no other alternative. If I can't get you to do my will, I will force you into a position whereby you will do it. And it'll be under a very unfortunate set of circumstances. And so he brought, he brought the e Egyptians. Now, you would think, you would think that would have gotten... Caused them to come to their senses and say, wow, we better get busy doing God's work. What do you think happened? Well, just like everybody else, you know, when your mother catches you doing something you shouldn't do and spanks you, for a short period of time, you are the most obedient child. But as time goes on, you become indifferent to the discipline because there's really no more discipline to be had. And so you become lackadaisical. And what once you, you were so vigilant watching, you no longer are. And so you begin to fall back to the old ways. So what happened to the children of Israel? They did the exact same thing. God said, all right, you won't listen to me. I, I brought the Egyptians. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Here come the Assyrians. And they said, I'll tell you what, that doesn't work. Here come the Babylonians. Oh, if that doesn't work, here come the Medes and the Persians. If that didn't work, okay, here come the Greeks. That didn't work, here come the Romans. And each time, what happened? The yoke got harder harder and harder and harder. Remember Hananiah the prophet? Y'all remember that false prophet? 
You remember what in Jeremiah's day? Jeremiah went around prophesying in the name of the Lord. God told Jeremiah, I want you to put a wooden yoke around your neck and, pro uh, your neck and prophesy to the children of Israel. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah did that. And so what did Hananiah do? He was a false prophet, took the wooden yoke, smashed it into the ground, broke it. He said, thus saith the Lord, you're not going to go into captivity. Then he told Jeremiah, come over here, son. He said, here's what I want you to do. Instead of a wooden yoke, I want you to put an iron yoke around your neck. And he says, I want you to prophesy now. He says, the captivity that you were once going to have was going to be relatively easy in comparison. He said, but now I'll tell you what it's going to do, I'm going to do. Since you're so rebellious, since you're so stiff-necked, he says, the, he says, instead of a yoke of wood, which would have been relatively easy, he said, I'm going to make the yoke of iron, and you're going to pay a severe price. Because you, 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 you wanted to hear the false prophet. You didn't want to obey Jeremiah, the good prophet. So there's, your, there's the consequences. And so what happened, dear friends, you see, you see that God, God has lesson after lesson after lesson. And so what happens is you see, you see here that, that the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ has a work to do. This earth was, is God's. He owns everything. He established this country for a divine purpose, and it was for his work. We're here to finish it. We're, listen, Paul says in the book of Hebrews, we're, we're supposed to be sojourners like, Mo, like Abraham, sojourning through this earth. You know, basically, you ever... You ever been in a hurry running through an airport, right? Man, or maybe a crowded train station. You know, you if you got to sometimes move, and I'm sorry, you got to be like a like a running back. I mean, you got to stiff block some people. I mean, you got to push them out of the way, or you're not going to make your flight. And so, think of that as the journey on this earth. There's some things you got to block out of your way because you you're in a hurry to get to where you need to go, and that's heaven. And you can't let anything stand in your way. And so we're on a journey. And the church would come out of, the, out of its wilderness experience. It would arise in the new world. And we know, according to Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go to where? All the world, the whole world. So we, therefore, based on what Jesus said, it would be a global movement. It's a worldwide movement. It's not a movement. It may start in America, but it will go to the whole world. All right? Look what it goes on to say. Look what it goes on to say. We know Revelation 12, 17. It says they will keep the commandments of God. It will. Def By the way, look, I want to show you something. Go to Revelation 12, 17. I want to show you this. It's usually not brought out, and I think it should uh, be. Look what it says. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep, and underscore that word keep. I'm going to talk about that. Which keep the commandments of God and have the faith of uh, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, look, I'm going to show you something. The word keep there means to preserve, all right? It means to, to, to preserve. And it means also that you, 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 you are uh, in possession of it, all right? But the word keep also means you not only are you in possession of it, but you're defending that which you have, okay? It's not enough to possess it. You are a defender of the Ten Commandments. If someone is attacking it, you must defend it. Do you understand? Because you're the only means with which God has on this earth to defend his honor. So you need to stand up and be counted when someone attacks the Ten Commandments. And I don't mean you've got to stick your nose sometimes where it doesn't belong. But if God perchance should organize a situation where you are there to testify, then testify. 
and defend the honor of God. And so they, 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 they will defend the Ten Commandments. They will not only keep it, meaning obey it and preserve it, they're going to defend it. And this is one thing that I have a real problem with sometimes uh, with uh, the Adventists. You know, it's, as I say, we, we, we say, well, we keep the commandments of God, which, by the way, in most cases, that's not true. That's a lie because uh, they don't keep it. Uh, that's a mere profession. It's not enough to profess that you keep something. Listen to me. You can't profess to keep something that you in reality don't. You can't. That's a no, you can't. So you've got to be able to do it. And God will give you the grace, the strength to do it. But you've got to defend it. And we need more defenders in the church. We need people to start standing up, be counted. You don't have to be belligerent, rude, obnoxious. But listen to me. We need more courage. We need people to stand. If there's somebody in the, and I'm not saying in this case, but I'm just going to give a, a, a situation. Let's assume for the sake of the argument, someone comes to your church and from the pulpit, they preach a blatant lie. Now, let me, let me, listen, there's two kinds of doctrines and two kinds of issues you've got to deal with. There's, there's, uh, there's precious truth and there's, there's, there's present truth. Now, let me give you a, 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 something that's... Uh, um, uh, there's salvational issues as well as that and non-salvational. So if someone comes and addresses a non-salvational issue and you disagree, to me, I'm not going to make a big issue out of it. It's not a salvational issue. And I'll give you an example. Say, say the carpet. Say, say, say your church wants to put new carpet in. So well, one part of the church says, well, let's go green. The other person says, no, let's go red. I, I'm not going to divide a church over that. I can, tell you, I can tell you right now. Everybody wants green? Fine. Put the green. I may not even like it. I don't care, but I'm not going to divide a church over that. But if, let's say half the church says we want to keep Sunday and the other half says we want to keep the Sabbath. Then I'm going to say to the church, that, the group that wants to keep Sunday, well, you, if you want to keep Sunday, I'll, I, I'm going to try to discourage you from doing that. But if you want to, go. That, that's, the, that's the door you came in. That's the door you leave. So go ahead. Get on out of here. Because this church, as far as I'm going to be a member of this church, we're not going down that path. I'll fight to the death over that issue. Now, you can call me divisive. You say, oh, he's mean, he's rude, he's crude. No, no, no. That's your insecurities trying to avoid the reality of your sins because you don't want to face the truth that you are rejecting it. And I'm going to stand up. If that offends you, that's your problem. I keep telling people, have the moral courage to stand up for what's right. Leave the consequences to God. If somebody's offended, look, what you do is you, you just give them this. Say, Here you go. Here's a Kleenex. God bless you. Go and call down the corner and cry. Because I'm not going to sit there and worry about it. I'm not going to sit there and placate to your, your baby childish way. And it's amazing how many times we are placating to childish behavior among adults. People who should be grown up, should be acting mature, and stop, you know, we're, we're, we're look what's happened to this, I don't know what generation now, we're running out of alphabets, we're, I think we're down to Z, and I don't know what, I mean, obviously there's nothing that way, a Z1 now, Z2, I don't know. Who knows where we're at, but I do know this. We're at a point that almost anything and everything offends people. And let me tell you something right now in the, in the reality of what really offends them. You know, they say, they said in the beginning, all we want is equal rights. All we want is equal rights. Now, that's how it started. But what they really wanted was not equal rights. What they wanted was you in the final analysis. They want you not only to embrace their ideology, but they don't want you to have an ideology different than them. So it started off with, I want my equal rights to the point where I'm not going to recognize any of your rights unless you comply with mine. 
in every way. And so what's happened to those who were timid in the beginning, who those who yielded and surrendered, what are they doing? They're complacent. They keep on going. Well, they'll surrender, surrender. Until you have a church that says nothing. You know, you, you it's, it's, look, I mean, it's really, it's uncomprehensible. We need to defend the Ten Commandments. And I don't care what people don't like. Then, and then in Isaiah 58, 12 to 14. Now, again, by the way, this whole chapter, Isaiah 58, please read the whole chapter. Because it is the message, it is one of them, it is one of the messages for the Elijah message. It is a powerful chapter, a powerful chapter of bringing God's people back to their senses. But in here in Isaiah 58, 10, 12 to 14, they, the remnant church, will restore the Sabbath to its rightful place. And that's just not in relation to, you know, here comes the third, here comes the fourth, and so forth, the orderly. But in its rightful place regarding the nature of the people of this world, not just the church, but this people of this world must recognize who the true God of heaven is and that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And the Sabbath is a memorial of that very thing. And then Ezekiel chapter 20, 12 and 20, and Isaiah eleven twelve, They will keep the seventh-day Sabbath because it's a sign between God and his people. It's a sign. As he says there in Isaiah the prophet, God will set up an end sign for all the world to see. And that's talking about the seventh-day Sabbath. In other words, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is prophesying of the last days. And he's saying, just before I come, the Sabbath will be brought back to its proper place. And the whole world will be enlightened regarding the nature of the truth of the Sabbath. Not that all the world will embrace the seventh-day Sabbath. That's not what it says. But that the whole world will know the truth of the seventh-day Sabbath. They're going to know it. Oh, God's going to make sure of that. And so that's with another identifying mark. That's another clear identifying mark. Let's keep going. Mark 16, 15. And then it says this, really, they will preach the gospel as found in Revelation 4, because there, Mark 16, 15, it says, you know, preach the gospel in all the world. Preach the gospel. Well, now look, what gospel is he referring to? Well, Ephesians uh, uh, 4, 6 uh, says, you know, there's one Lord, one faith, uh, uh, one, Lord one faith, one baptism. It says this, it, uh, it will preach the gospel as found in Revelation 14, 6 to 12, which is obviously is the everlasting gospel, a summation really of the three angels' message. So there's another identifying mark. And then again, Revelation chapter 18, 1 to 4, another, here it is, the fourth angel's message. It will call uh, uh, the people of God to come out of the false churches and religions. Not just out of false Christianity, but out of all the false religions of the world. All of them. Pagan religions of the East and the, and the false churches of Christianity. All of them. God is going to have... Listen, let me tell you something. You're going to need more courage to do that. Can you imagine living in the Middle East or somewhere in Asia and in, in Orient and in, in, in some of these countries? Listen, I've been to the... Um, the, uh, in Asia, and um, and I've gone to places where there was strong, hardcore Islamic. And I'm going to tell you something right now. I, 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 you know, you don't go in those countries and do whatever you want to do. Trust me, you do not. You won't come out. And they don't care what your, this government thinks. They don't care. Okay. So I remember. I remember thinking to myself, Ray, if you're smart and you got any kind of anything working upstairs. I mean, I'll tell you something. I wouldn't even look at a woman. Not even if he was friendly, just because I didn't ever want any woman to ever say, he looked at me as a very, you know, in a, in a passionate way or whatever, you know, some kind of, a, you know, because, hey, it's your word against the woman. And I got to know you. She's a Muslim. And you're a Christian. And I'm taking your word. 
So I made sure, and I would never shake a hand of a woman, never touch her. I wouldn't even come near her. You know, and I would respect their everything. And I'm going to tell you, you don't see some of their places, they're all polluted with their streets, all dirty. Not in a lot of, some, a lot of places, they're clean. They mean it. They're not kidding. I've been to Singapore. Remember that boy who got his backside tanned? And he should have, by the way. They should, I wish they had thrown him in jail, too. But I'm going to tell you something. They weren't kidding. You go to the cities and down to these places, it's spotless. There's no... Nobody takes a piece of paper and throws it on the ground. I have never seen one person do that. It's spotless. Now, again, now you may say, well, it's because they're very harsh and cruel, blah, blah, blah. Well, listen, I don't care. Sometimes I'm sorry. Sometimes you've got to lay down the law. I'm sorry. You can say what you want to say, but I'm sorry. Why are we as a country so, lacked, or, or so, so corrupt in many ways? Because we've been lackadaisical in disciplining those who need discipline. You know, I'm sorry, but that's the way it's got to be. And I'm not saying it has to be the, the same extent with which maybe other countries do it, but there has to be discipline. I'm sorry. Someone commits a crime, and it's a, it's a very serious, serious crime. What they're doing now, you got a lot of these prosecutors, they're getting people who are actually committing murder and letting them go. They're just letting them go. And then they just simply go back to commit murder again. God help us. Revelation chapter 3 in verses 14 to 20. Now here's very interesting because now we're starting to really look more I was dealing with today. Revelation 3, 14 to 22, which is the Elijah or the um, Laodicean message. And Malachi 3, 1 and Malachi 4, 5. They were preached both the Laodicean and Elijah messages. Now there's some, in many ways they're similar. They really are. But they have a uniqueness to each of them. When you look at the Laodicean message, there is a rebuke to the church, a specific rebuke, you know, and say, look, you, you, you're lukewarm. You don't realize, you know, people say to me, by the way, they say, well, look, the, the reason the, the church is condemned by God is because they're, they're in a lukewarm state. I said, that's, that's not why God condemns them. It says, because he said very clearly, thou knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, it's not a state of ignorance that's causing their demise. It's their willful state of ignorance. They willfully want to remain ignorant. Mm -hmm. They don't want to come out of the coma. And that's why he says, okay, I'm going to chastise you. And he says, if you don't, he says, I'll spew you out. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's total rejection. And, of course, he obviously gives a remedy. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, faith and love purified in the fires of the tribulations of life. And then white raiment, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, righteousness by faith. And then, of course, the ISAF, spiritual discernment through the anointing of the third person of the Godhead. And boy, I'm going to tell you something. One thing in, in our church today, we need spiritual discernment. I, I, I'm going around to Seventh-day Adventists trying to convince Seventh-day Adventists of Seventh-day Adventist truth. Because they can't discern what's right or wrong. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, my, whole, my life has been for almost 40 years traveling around Seventh-day Adventists, telling Seventh-day Adventists this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe. Now, that shouldn't be. You mean to tell me we don't know what we believe? We don't know who we are? It's obvious to me personally, in many cases, that's exactly what the problem is. We don't know. 
because we're too worldly-minded. We're too caught up in the things of this world. I go to some Adventist churches and some Adventist homes, and I'm telling you, friends, I'm not asking you to live like, like a monk. I'm not asking you to be an unreasonable person. But I'm telling you, you go into some of these churches and you go the way some of these people behave and act, and I, and I just shake my head in complete disbelief. And I have to sometimes question whether I'm actually in a Seventh-day Adventist church. And then I hear sometimes what comes from the pulpit. I'm going to tell you something. I've gotten to the point now, and I'm, I don't care. Say what you want to say. You know, I really don't care anymore in some ways. I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm completely, totally disconnected. But I've gotten to a point when I hear some, something that is, if I'm walking to, let's say I'm a visitor, and I come to this church and I hear something that's outlandish, I'm not even going to waste my time. I'm just walking out. I'm just, see you later. Goodbye. You all can keep this stuff because I'm not going to allow myself to be subject to it. I refuse to allow my mind to listen to it anymore. Now, if I'm a member, that's a different. I'll fight tenaciously. This is my church. I'll fight for it. But if I'm a visitor and I start hearing things that I know that are out, you know, out of the spectrum, I'm just going to pack up, and get my car, and go back home. That's it. And so it's just it's just the way things are. But look, Laodicea's message is a very strong message. It's a straight testimony, straight in the sense that it doesn't beat about the bush. You, if you hear a sermon, and at the end of the sermon you look at each other and say, "What did he say?" That means you didn't hear a sermon. It means you heard a lie. See, truth has a certainty to it. There's a ring to it. There's a clarity to it. You know, when Jesus taught, he taught as one having authority. It's because Jesus simply, and this is, and we're told, Jesus said, this is the scripture. He read the scripture and he said, that's what it means. When the Pharisees read the scripture, he said, well, it could mean this, it could mean that, it could mean that. I don't know. Pick and choose what you want. I'll see you next Sabbath. That's how they talk. It's the uncertainty. And that's not the way. Look, when, so, when we know something to be true, state the truth. State it. Stop playing with the people. Tell them the truth. They want to hear the truth. I'm convinced. I'm convinced there are more people, and I mean this in the, in the terms among those who are spiritually inclined, who want to actually hear the truth. It may offend them, but they, 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 deep down say, amen, amen. And you know full well when truth is spoken to you. You know this from your own personal studies. And from hearing the truth, you know that when truth is spoken to you, it, it's, it, there's, a, there's a, a reaffirming presence about you that inside you say, yes, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's right. Because that's God speaking to you. That's your spirit in tune with his spirit. You understand? They're coming together in unison. You know, I, I personally believe that God put it in the heart of man to not just hear the truth, but to love the truth. Now, that doesn't mean he's going, to, he's going to accept it. It just means I believe God put it in the heart of men. When they hear it, they know it. They know it. And so, and so the Laodicean, Elijah message I spoke about a little bit today, you know, that Elijah, the real strong message has to be given. It's strong because the times demand it. There's so much darkness. You know, if you're in a dark room and it's completely pitch black, you can't even see your, your hand before your face, face. A, a, a lit match will do some good, but it won't light the whole room. You need a light that will illuminate the whole room. That darkness simply disappears now. 
And that's the kind of messages we need now. We need messages from the pulpit that, that cry out with certainty, here's who we are, this is what we're about, and this is the message we need to be giving. And, uh, and as I say, we need to do it in the most loving, lovable way. We don't want to be sadistic and rude and obnoxious, but we need to give this message. Revelation chapter 12, 7 and 10, or 7, 17 and 1910. Here we have one another identify Mark. They would be having the possession of the spirit of prophecy. Now, this gift isn't a new gift. People seem to think this is the gift that only God gave in the last days. That's not true. The spirit of prophecy is the gift of prophecy God has given throughout the history of time. He gave it to Noah. Noah had the spirit of prophecy. And the spirit of prophecy is the spirit of God coming upon you, prophesying in the name of God various things that are essential for that time. You see, it's essential truths that were constant, that, that constitute uh, the, the truth for that day. God gives it from time to time to people for a special purpose and design. And that's what happens in the last days. God is going to send a special message through the spirit of prophecy for these unique times that we live in. And let me tell you, you can say whatever you want about Ellen White. You can say, oh, you know, uh, she, 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 if she were alive today, she would have written the spirit of prophecy in a very different way. And I always tell people, I say, well, who are you? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? That's the argument you're going to go with? The implications of that argument simply is this. That first and foremost, you believe that she wrote it. I said, number two, I said, you seem to think that God has fallen short regarding the nature of the things that he said to her as if he couldn't see the end from the beginning. As if he's short-sighted. You don't really, listen, that's a slap in the face of God Almighty. First and foremost, let's remember, Sister White is not the author of the spirit of prophecy. No more than Peter, James, and John, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah are the writers of those books. They're simply instruments used by the third person of the Godhead to write what God told them. Don't you understand? There's a divine revelation. Now, they, had to, they wrote in the language that they, they, that they had at that time. For example, if you look at the book of Amos, okay, you want to see divine and human relationship. Here's a great book. If you look at the book of Amos, the book of Amos is a prophetic book, and it's highly... Um, peppered throughout with, uh, with symbolism of fruit and harvesting and um, various types of animals and the uh, instruments that are used for, for, uh, for uh, farming and so forth. Now, why is that? Well, once you start find out who Amos was, you find that Amos was a farmer. So Amos wrote in the language that he was familiar with. So God, through the third person of the Godhead, revealed these divine truths to him. And in the language that he could describe in terms of understanding, God used and communicated him divine truth. The human and the divine were working together. That's why Peter says, you know, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That moving process is something we can't understand. How the Holy Spirit moves upon you and then through that act of moving upon you, inspiration is recorded. It's not because the recording came from you. It was the moving process by the third person of the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit is the operating factor, meaning he's the author. So the spirit of prophecy is a, is a gift that God gave throughout the history of mankind. What he's simply telling you that in the last days just before Jesus comes, God's going to manifest that same gift again for a divine purpose because there needs to be a special message for those people at this time. So I'm telling you right now. You better be careful how you treat the spirit of prophecy. You think it's just a book. It's not just a book. 
It's not just, it's, oh, well, that's it's a, it's a wonderful suggestion she gave. That's not a suggestion, not a recommendation. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a consensus. It's a divine revelation from the third person of the Godhead to the servant of the Lord, to the church, and to the world at large. And so, because don't tell me the Spirit of Prophecy is written just for the church. That is absolute nonsense. That's like saying when Noah, when God gave the Spirit of Prophecy to Noah, that's, that was just for the church. That was just for his family, people. No, that was for the world at large. So, so the Spirit of Prophecy is a gift that God gave to us so that we could go to the world and tell them the truths that God is, uh, so essentially wants them to know. Look, dear friends, you, you know, why do you think we're told to give out the great controversy, steps of Christ, thoughts of the amount of blessings, Christ's object lessons, and, and prophets and kings, and so on and so on? Why? If we weren't supposed to give them out to the public, it means by implication that was never intended for the public consumption. But the fact that we're supposed to do it means that that divine purpose was that God used those uh, used Sister White to so that the world may understand things that you and I are taking granted for every day. We, I tell you, I, it's one thing about Seventh Day Adventists in general, not all, but in general, it seems as though we're just taking advantage, or we, we, we're just um, we don't really appreciate what we have. And I think sometimes, and you know, this is the way it is. Sometimes things got to be taken from you. So you appreciate what you had. You know, sometimes that happens. And uh, I hope that's not the case with anybody here. I really don't. I hope, I don't want to see anything bad happen to you. I truly don't. I hope we all come to our senses before it's too late. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but this is the way it is. All right, let's go on. Mark 16, 16, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Making no mistake about it, baptism is another critical issue regarding the nature of identifying Mark to the remnant church. They will be not only preaching that uh, baptism and the proper way to be baptized and so forth, but also that it's necessary for one's salvation. Now, I say, now wait a minute. Are you saying we're saved by baptism? That's not what I said. But it's just like all the, the, the you know prerequisites that God gives before. For example, can you say be saved without faith? If you don't exercise faith, can you be saved? All right, does faith save you? No. Nope. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say faith saves you. It says grace saves you, the blood of Christ saves you, the marriage of Jesus saves you, so forth and so on and so on. But faith is an essential ingredient in order that you may obtain the grace of God that saves you. So you need to have faith. So it's a, it's a, it's a condition, it's a prerequisite. It doesn't save you, but it's a means by which you can be saved. For example, can you be saved if you don't come to Jesus? I'm not, I'm not going to come to Jesus and ask him to forgive me. Can I be saved? All right. But in the act of coming to, to Jesus, does that save me? Nope. Made, that's made very clear. Steps to Christ. The act of coming to Jesus doesn't save you. Don't you understand why you come to Jesus? You come to Jesus not, uh, uh, not because you, it, the act itself saves you, but you come to Jesus just as you are so that he can save you. And so it's, it's, it's putting things in the proper perspective. And so baptism is going to be an essential element. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever, you do all to the glory of God. And this is Christian standards. This is not just the health message. This is Christian standards and all, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do. And that word do in the Greek means to actually practice and participate in your life. Okay, it's not, it's not an occasional act. It's what you're doing. It's your life. In other words, uh, another way of putting it in the Greek is you'll see the word in the King James, communication, right? 
Now, the word communication, a lot of times in the Greek and the New Testament, doesn't mean what we have to mean today, verbally, if I communicate with you. In, the, in that day when the King James was written, when they used the word communicate, it meant lifestyle, behavior. It didn't exclude verbally talking to one another, but the word communicate meant beyond what you say. It meant the way you behaved. It meant your lifestyle. So, so that's what he's really getting at. So your lifestyle should be one that whereby you give God glory. So Christian standards is an essential element to the identifying mark to the remnant church. And I'm, I'm, t- and I'm telling you that we need to keep standards high. Look what happens to society when you have no standards. Look at it. Go ahead. Look at it. Yeah, I don't think I need to tell any of you. Look what's happened to us. Look what's happening when you have no standards. And by the way, I'm convinced that there are two areas where society has gone wrong that has plummeted the world into utter confusion and, and, and sinfulness. One is in the home, because the home uh, family life is completely a disaster. Uh, and we, I'm not going to go through it all, but the, the home life. And number two is in the church. Uh, those two areas, when when the home life went down the tubes, the church went down the tubes, there went everything. All society, because society is a mere reflection of the home and, and, and religion in terms of, uh, of a society. You lose those two things, you don't have a society anymore. I'll tell you what it is. It's the wild, wild west, every man for himself. And that's really true. And by the way, don't think that's never happened before. It has happened throughout the history of mankind. And the most famous, of course, is the French Revolution. All moral restraint was thrown off. All moral restraint, everything, everything. I mean, they threw everything out the window. Religion, everything, they threw it all out the window. And they were going to restructure society, not just for France, but they wanted to be a, a shining example for the world. And boy, were they an example, but not in the way they thought. Because if you read anything of the materials that were written at the time when the French Revolution was going on, there were some historians who said that the, the deeds were so evil, so corrupt. He said, I, I remember reading this one historian I just thought. He said, I, I, it was so immoral, he said, I dare not even write it down. He wouldn't record it, he was so wicked. And, you know, and so I thought to myself, man, how bad must it have been when you have a historian, and that's their job, is to record history, saying, hold up here, hold up here. This is, and by the way, if you read what they did record, if it was worse than that, whew, it must have been really bad. And uh, because, it, 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 I mean, when you have, and this is recorded now, you have women prostitutes being put up and, and things that are being done. It's, and, and, and yet, Something must have been done so bad that it that they recorded this event, by the way, all these events I just said. But when something's done that's even worse than that, and you say, I can't record that, and they record something that's already so immoral, you know it's got to be beyond the pale of, of anything that, can, that one can imagine. So all I'm saying is we need standards. You need, a, you need standards in your own life. Even if you put, put God aside, let's just put God aside. You need standards in your own life. You do. You gotta have standards. You gotta have something. You gotta have some kind of moral worth to you in some in, in some way. You have to have it, or you're you're not gonna have a life. Now, I mean, think about the standard in the home. Just, again, let's put God aside just for a second. Some kind of semblance of a standard in the home life, or you won't have a home life. 
And you can go work, you can do the same thing with your work ethic and so forth. There has to be some means by which you have some order in your life. Order comes from holding to certain standards and then applying them in your life. There's a reason why we preach standards. There's a divine purpose. All right, let's keep going. Let's move on here. Well, again, Revelation 3, 14 to 22, we know that it, another identifying mark is that it is, a, it is the Laodicean church. Now, what do I mean? God's church is not perfect. It's not a perfect church. So get this mindset out. Well, I walk in and everything's going to be hunky-dory in the church of God. No, it's not. You have to have realistic expectations. And I, I tell people this when I do evangelism. When you come into the church, don't expect to see everybody hunky-dory. I said, you're going to see good people and bad people, nice people and unfortunately not so nice. I said, you're going to see the wheat and tares, the sheep and the goat, the good and the bad, all together in the church. Now, you try and hope the, the best you can to maintain some semblance of sanity in the house of God and have order, to have something whereby you can function at, at least as a cohesive unit. As a, if you lose all order in the church of God, you know, then, then where are you? So, so this is very critical. Even though we recognize the church is defective, we understand, though, it's still God's church. God, remember, is the church militant and the church triumphant. We're in a transitional phase. And you better hope and pray to God. You better hope and pray to God that you get transitioned in this church triumphant. And the only people that will be transitioned from the church militant into the church triumphant are those that have been faithful to God during the time of the church militant. They've been faithful to him, and they'll maintain that faithfulness. And when the crisis breaks, really breaks, they'll transition over into the church triumphant. Okay? And so that's another very important issue. But let's keep going. And there's obviously only one church in all the world. If you put all those identifying marks together, there's only one church. There isn't any other church in the world. It's the Seventh-day Adventist church. There's no question about it. And it's not a boastful claim. This is a matter of fact, I remember when I, first, I was raised a Roman Catholic, and I remember when, when I first heard uh, this kind of a meeting, this son of a series of meetings I went to. I remember uh, the minister, we were walking down out the stairs, uh, down the, the church stairs at the end of one of the meetings in the evangelistic campaign, and I heard him say the name Seventh day Adventist. And I said, I said, what's, I said excuse me, what's that? Yeah, what's that name? Seventh, I'd never heard it before. I never heard of the name Seventh-day Adventist. And, uh, but so this isn't a boastful claim. It's just simply an acknowledgement of, of the facts when you put it together. It's like a piece of a puzzle. Uh, it can only point to one church, and there's no question about it. Now, again, look, that places upon us a great responsibility. And what a privilege. You realize, you realize that God, in his divine wisdom and kindness, has chosen you to be a part of this movement to help finish the work of God on this earth. I mean, what a blessing. What a blessing. What a blessing. Alright? Alright, now look. I'm going to close with this. Let's go over to Isaiah 11. Go over to Isaiah chapter 11. And look what it says here, 11 to 16. Isaiah 11, 11 to 16. <clears throat> well, let's go back to verse 10. Because this is messianic right here in verse 10. It says this, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Of course, the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah. Remember, he would come from Jesse, right? So here's the Messiah 
which shall stand for an ensign of the people. In other words, the Messiah would be made known as an ensign. What's an ensign? A sign is a signpost where everybody recognizes it and sees it. All right. So why is the Messiah an ensign for the people? Listen to me. It would be proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus, and so everyone would see him as a sign to come to for salvation. Because look what he goes on to say. Look what he goes on to say. So once he's an ensign, it says, to it. To what? To the ensign, the signpost. The Gentiles shall seek, and his rest, the Messiah's rest, shall be glorious. So notice, Jesus will be lifted up, all will see, and they, and, and they will, those who come to him will find rest and peace in Jesus Christ. Man, what a, what a fantastic, there's the gospel. Just in that one prophecy right there. All right, so then he goes on to say, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of, of his people. Now this is talking about the time of the captivity of the children of Israel when they're going to be scattered abroad. He says this, Which shall be left in Assyria and Egypt and Bathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and the islands of the sea. So where are God's people? They're everywhere. All over the world. All over the world. He shall set up an ensign. Now watch. This is a different signpost. It's not the same in verse 10. Verse 10 is the Messiah. The sign here is something altogether different. What other sign has God set up for the whole world to see? Seventh-day Sabbath. So he shall set up an ensign for the nations. It shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. The Sabbath is going to be a message whereby God is going to draw the people. And they're going to come. From all over the world. Look what he goes on to say, uh, see, uh, say here. He says, um, assemble the outcasts of Israel. So by the way, they assemble the outcasts of Israel. Again, these are the people of God who have gone astray. And they gather together to disperse the Judah from the four corners of the earth. God's people scattered everywhere. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Who's, Ephraim? Who are, who's the ancestors of Ephraim? Y'all remember? You remember who Ephraim, the descendant, or they descended from? How about Jacob and Esau? Now look. Listen very carefully. When you look at the relationship Ephraim has with the children of Israel, they were adversaries. They weren't friends. They were related to each other, but they were enemies. See, there's a problem in the church. There's some people who hate God's people and they're still in the church. There's division, gossiping, murmuring, complaining, backbiting, jealousy, evil surmising, etc., etc. Look what he's saying. Now watch. He says, Ephraim, Ephraim shall, de- uh, it says, the, um, uh, the verse 13, also, it says, the envy of, of, also of Ephraim shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex or seek revenge upon Ephraim. What does that tell you? That there's no more troubles anymore. What, is, what has God done? Listen, friends, in order to get rid of the trouble, you've got to get rid of the people who are causing the trouble. They either one of two ways. They either convert or you've got to get them out. 
And that's what God's going to do. He's either going to bring about a great conversion in the heart of many people, or he's going to shake them right out of the church. Yes. And when you shake the people out of the church who are causing troubles, what are you left with? Just people who love each other. Verse 14, they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. Now the shoulder in Bible prophecy represents strength and power. Who are the Philistines? These are the people that hate God's people. They're the enemies of God. What is he saying? The day will come when we will turn the tables upon our enemies and we will triumph over them. See, right now they're beating us up. But this shall not always be. The day is coming when God's going to turn the tables on them. He says, and they shall spoil them of the east together, and they shall lay their hands upon Edom and Moab, and the chief children of Ammon shall obey them. Who's Edom and Moab? Who's where they come from? They came from Lot. Who's Lot? The nephew of who? Abraham. They're related to the children of Israel. But notice, notice these people prior to this were enemies of God, of, of God's people. So what's he telling you? The day is coming when God is going to turn the hearts of our enemies and they're going to come into the church. Many people are going to come into the church who once hated us. They're coming in. They're coming in. Look what it goes on to say. Let me see if I... I, Yeah, we'll go all the way. It says, And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. Now now notice, the, uh, the, the Egyptian sea... What, why does he bring reference to that? Because that's the great parting of the Red Sea. What's he going to do? God's going to perform a mighty miracle for our deliverance. He's making reference to the Egyptian sea because this was the great miracle God wrought for the children of Israel to come out of bondage and, and to the promised, into the promised land. And so it's a metaphor. He's telling you that God's going to work a mighty miracle on our behalf and, and, and deliver us from our enemies. He goes on to say, In the mighty wind shall they, shall they shake the hand over the river and shall smite her over the seven streams and make men go over how? Dry shod. Just as, they, just as God performed the mighty miracle for Moses and the children of Israel, so God will do for us today. Listen, friends, listen to me. Just before God delivered them, Moses said, gave a message to the children of Israel. He said, stand still and see the salvation of God. What he said this in 21st century vernacular is, I just want you to stop your whining and stop your complaining. I want you to listen to me. And he says, listen, God's going to do something mightily, something powerful. Just stand still, hold on to the faith that God's given you and watch what he does. All right, you're going to, we're going to see it. We're going to see it. Now, I hope and pray to God we're on the right side when it comes. But I'm going to tell you something right now. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying, I'm going to do something so miraculous for your deliverance. Look, listen. The miracles of God have to be such to, to, to the extent with which nobody can ever say, I, 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 can, take, I can take responsibility for that, for that miracle. It has to be something beyond, beyond human ability. It's got to be so miraculous Everybody who witnesses it says uh, there is a God. The Almighty could only Almighty could have done that. No man could split the Red Sea and walk on it on dry land. Yes. Okay, how many uh, you know vacuum or air, air, air blowers you had? That ain't happening. So it's a divine revelation beyond human comprehension. And God's going to work these miracles. And it goes on to say this, and there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people. A highway. God's going to build a road all the way to heaven. You understand? 
<clears throat> and only the remnant are going to walk on that road. He says, which shall be left in Assyria? He says this, like as was the Israel in that day that God came up out of the land of Egypt. Just as God miraculously delivered God's people from Egypt, so he will do us in the last days. He's going to do the exact same thing. You're going to see a mighty miracle. You're going to see things God did is just going to stagger the human mind. And we're just going to say, wow. So what are we talking about? In the last days, God's going to gather together to disperse the Judah. God is, I am convinced right now, gathering people for heaven. I am convinced of it, not a shadow of a doubt in my mind. And I believe, and I'm going to tell you what, you can say this is arrogant. I don't know how to tell you other than this. I actually believe this weekend is one of those moments where we are gathering ourselves right now. And I don't know who you are. You may not be gathering your heart in your heart, all right? I'm not talking physicality. I'm talking spirituality. I'm convinced that this weekend is a message whereby we have all got to take an account and understand that we better get ready. Amen. We better get ready. Amen. And stop this churchy, churchy playing. You know, this. Yes. We know how to play church. Very few know how to practice it. All right? Now, go to Zephaniah. Go to Zephaniah. And we're going to close with this. Zephaniah, chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 2, I apologize. Zephaniah, chapter 2. Zephaniah, chapter 2. Let's look here, verse 1. Notice the message now. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord with all, uh, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye should be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Now stop right there. Now. This is a very strong message. Four times the word before is used in verse 2. Four times. So I want you to gather before, 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 before. Now let me tell you something right now. The fact that you have him repeating fundamentally the same thing four times in one verse tells you he's heightening, he's heightening the issue in order that you might be aware of it. He wants to draw your attention to that because it is very important. Right? So four times he says, I want you to gather yourselves, prepare yourselves before, 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 before. Which implies very clearly when this takes place, there'll be no chance for you to gather anymore. It's over. So what event is he describing that ends any possibility for you to gather together? Yes, right. It's the close of human probation. It's not the Sunday law. It's the close of human probation. Okay? Once probation closes, there's no longer an opportunity for you to gather. It's too late. It's too late. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour regarding the nature primarily of the second coming, but more importantly, you have to understand the context in which he's making that statement. And that's just not referring to the second coming. He's talking about the time of the judgment when God brings up your name under investigation. 
No man knows the day or the hour when God's going to call your name up and investigate you. You understand? Let me tell you something right now. You're not going to get a notice in the mail. It says, by the way, by next June, your name's coming up on the 10th on 7 o'clock in, in the morning. Because you know what's going to happen to you if you got that notice? You're going to live your life, oh, howdy doody, but come January, come June the, 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 the 9th, right? You, all of a sudden, you're going to find Jesus, right? Just before that 7 o'clock time comes, hallelujah, thank you, God, right? Let me tell you something. That's why he's not going to give you a notice. I'm going to explain something to you. Whether you understand it or not, you've already been given your notice. The moment you heard the three angels' message, God put you on notice. Do you understand? The moment you heard the three angels' message, God put you on notice that you're going to be judged. That's why he says, watch and pray, watch and pray, lest you be led into temptation. Because no man knows the day or the hour when your name's coming up in the judgment. And let me tell you, dear friends, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of, 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 of an angry God. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. You're going to need all of his mercy and grace that he can give to you. Because I'm going to tell you, dear friends, if you stand in God, before God in the judgment without a mediator, that's it. There's no hope for you. That's right. All right? And I'm going to tell you something. When God calls up your name, as I said, he doesn't give you notice. And let me tell you, he's not going to tell you when he's done judging you and goes on to the next name. So you may be just going about in your life like so many have gone before who've already been passed by by God and are just going to live out their lives thinking all is well when the reality is that God's already left you. You say, well, you mean to tell me that I'm going to keep on, or this possibility that I could, I could be living my life and not realize what's been going on? Let me tell you something right now. <clears throat> when God <clears throat> closed the door on the ark in the days of Noah, that's not when the rain fell. The door was closed on the sixth day. The flood came on the seventh day. Which meant probation closed. Now listen. When probation closed. When probation closed. The antediluvian world didn't know it had closed. They had no knowledge. They didn't know. They saw the door closed. But they had no knowledge that it closed. Their probation was done. What were they doing for that last day? The same thing they were doing for the last 120 years, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. I knew not! And what didn't they know until the flood came? What didn't they know? That the day before probation had already closed on them, it was too late! Yes. They didn't know probation had closed. And there are going to be many people in the last days when God passes by their name and they're found wanting in the judgment, they're going to keep on going and not knowing they're lost for eternity. You say, well, that won't happen to people who are going to go to church. You're delusional! Because we're told from the pen and inspiration that we people in the church 
and the Holy Spirit and the latter rains falling all around them and they won't even recognize that they're not even partaking of the latter rain. They won't even recognize it. Now why? Because the Holy Spirit has left them. They're lost for eternity and they're still in the church singing their hymns Hanging their ties. How you doing, brother? God bless all oh, your sweet, just sweet. And the Spirit of God has left them and they never knew it. So don't tell me that it can't happen. It has happened and it will happen again. That's why Jesus said, Watch and pray, watch and pray. You don't know the day of the hour. Jesus is coming, friends. We better get ready. I may want to say with me, by the grace of God, and we have to qualify it, of course, only by the grace of God. But by the grace of God, Lord, help me to stand faithful and true. Give me wisdom when I lack so much. Grant me grace when I need so much. Fill me with your spirit that I may walk in the light of truth, not in just the privacy of my life, but in the public arena. Give me moral courage. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. One thing to take a bullet physically, that's a hard thing to do. But but moral courage, I think, is harder. Standing up when God demands that you stand up, be accounted for. But asking God to come and take your life and make something of it for the kingdom of heaven. How many want to say with me, by the grace of God, that's what I want. God bless you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you. Please keep us and bless us. May your angels watch over us, we pray. And God, thank you for everything you've ever done. Lord, we ask it would be far better, dear God, that our life be wasted in this world sooner than to be lost in the world to come. It's better to miss a few years here in this world than to miss out on eternity. So keep us safe and bless us. Help us, Lord, each one. And thank you once again for your kindness. Now, Lord, bless us as we go our separate ways. And watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. I appreciate you all. And I appreciate the invitation. I want you to do me one favor. I need your prayers. I'm heading back home right now. And we got about a five-hour trip. So I want you to do me a favor and, uh, and pray that we have a safe journey. And that uh, God keep us and protect us. You know, I'll tell you something. I don't know how you all feel about this, but I'm going to tell you something. That's the way I do now. I not only pray for us when we get on the road, but I pray for the people that drive around me. I'm not kidding. I say, God, be not only with us, but be with the drivers that come around us. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes you see people driving down the road, and, and they're not you're thinking, I hope they can realize they're crossing over. And uh, and uh, sometimes I see them make a swerve just at the right moment. And I remember my prayer. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.